Father, we look to you as the one who created us, as the one who sustains us, as the one who recreated us through Jesus Christ, as the one who has given us the gift of the Spirit, given us your word, given us the gift of the church and our unity in the church through your Son. And so we acknowledge you as the giver of all good gifts. And so we thank you. And we ask now that you would humble our hearts beneath your word, that you would remind us of yeah, just all the many effects of the curse and the fall and our own frailty and weakness as human beings so that we'd leave here more thankful for our salvation, more dependent upon you each and every day, and more just keenly aware of the kingdom that is to come. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, this is week four in this series. In the first week, you may recall, we talked about the creation of the heart and just how in Genesis 1 and 2 and 3, the Lord created and made us and in his image with bodies, but also with souls. We talked in week two about what does God really want from us? And so we talked about devotion of the heart and worship. And then last week, we talked about, okay, how does Scripture really explain our problem, our trouble? What's most deeply wrong? And so we talked about the problem with the heart of corruption and sin and dwelling and just the glory of the gospel in redeeming us. Well, this week, we're going to talk about influences upon the heart. And so if you haven't been before and need one of the handouts for this series, Parker Lepetska right here. Jacob, do you have some too, extra or no? No. So Parker has some extra. If you haven't grabbed one of these yet, because you haven't been in here, he has these handouts that he can share with you. Just keep your hand up and he'll get those to you. Because you remember last week we started with that story of Charles Whitman, who in 1966 had... Yeah, killed his mother, his wife, and then went to the tower of the University of Texas campus and barricaded himself on the top of that tower and shot another 14, or killed another 14 people, injured another 31. And so we talked about how does Scripture explain that kind of an event, knowing that we live in a world that has their own sets of explanations. And so we talked about just, yeah, what rules the heart rules the life. And that there were many things going on in his world, but at the end of the day, he did what he did because of him. That everything that comes out of us, everything we think, we say, we feel, we relate as a product of who we are and what's inside us. But this week, I do want us to step back and talk about, though, that there are influences upon the heart that are significant. And even in that story, when they did an autopsy of Charles Whitman, they did find a significant tumor near the amygdala, an area of his brain, that is tied to mediating aggression and violence. His father was an emotionally and physically abusive man, they came to learn. He was a sniper in the U.S. Marine Corps and was discharged without real accountability without real 
assessment of his mental state, given the fact that he possessed an arsenal of weapons at the time. And though the newspapers and journal articles that came out after would have never identified and never did identify, you know, there were probably demons involved. No articles said that. But we as Christians with a biblical worldview would say, you know, there were probably demons involved. Because it says in John 8, that the devil was a murderer from the beginning. So any kind of murderous, hateful, destructive activities that go on in the world in some way are going to have demonic influence involved. And though we can't say that demons were the root cause of his actions, we can assume they, they played a role. They exerted an influence. And so the, the main point of this morning, what we're going to talk about, is that our hearts don't exist in a vacuum. That what rules our heart will rule our lives. That our heart is the reason for what we think, feel, say, do, relate. But we're not floating around in a vacuum. We are physically embodied creatures. That's one of the things we're going to talk about. And that comes with a certain set of influences. We are socially embedded creatures. And that comes with a certain set of influences. We're spiritually embattled creatures. And that's going to come with a whole other set of influences. And yet the hope of the gospel and of the word of God is that there is a sovereign God enthroned who is not detached from all those influences, but uses all those influences for the good of his people, for the glory of his name. And so we're not hopelessly at the mercy of those influences, but those, those influences do matter. And so there's three reasons I really want us to consider this. I don't know if these are in your notes or not, but three reasons I think Scripture would have us think carefully about the many influences upon the heart. One is so that we don't flatten human existence to a mere spiritual existence. That... And there's a temptation always that we think that, okay, the spiritual things are all that matter. Rather than, okay, it might be what primarily matters, but it doesn't mean that it's all that matters. So we don't want to flatten human existence to just a spiritual existence. Because there'll be whole religions that are designed to try to help you rise above the physical and just exist on a spiritual plane. If you just figure out the right way to meditate, the right way to escape spiritually, that you can somehow live above and beyond the physical or above and beyond the demonic and angelic, above and beyond the societal. And that is to sort of flatten human existence in a way that Scripture never teaches us to do, that God never intends us to do. Secondly, we want to talk about this so that we can understand influences upon our hearts in a way that helps us interact biblically with those influences. Because at what point does the Bible say, yeah, there's demons out there, don't worry about that. Yeah, there's people and governments and parents, you know, just ignore it. Yeah, you've got a physical body, that comes with a few ups and downs, but don't think about it. Right? Scripture doesn't tell us to interact that way. But to be thoughtful, to be aware, to be alert, to understand how do these aspects of human existence actually influence me. But also, thirdly, we're going to talk about it so that we can assign those influences the proper weight. Seeing them as significant, but not seeing them as overwhelming causes 
for who we are or why we are the way we are. And I think this is one of the ways in which the biblical worldview is utterly distinctive, how biblical anthropology is very unique and that it really tries, God really tries to help us harmonize appreciating the influence of body, society, spiritual realm, other things, without giving it the weight of cause of this determines who I am and what I am. And so it sobers us, but it shouldn't make us hopeless that we're somehow just at the mercy of society. And so those are three reasons why this is an important discussion. So we'll jump here. You'll have the notes in front of you on influences upon the heart. And we'll just talk about these. Turn over, if you would, to Genesis chapter 2. Where God is going to create Adam and Eve. In the image of God, he's going to create them. I mean, really back in chapter 1, verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created a male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, multiply. Chapter 2, verse 15, the Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And then he's going to create Eve and bring her to Adam and... Verse 23 of chapter 2, Then the man said, This is the last bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Chapter 3, verse 1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. So we're going to see Satan on the scene in this form of a serpent, speaking through the serpent. So just in the first three chapters of Genesis, we're going to see God create a physical world with his words as a display of his glory and his handiwork. He's going to create man in his image, Eve, bring her to him. And then by chapter 3, there's Satan on the scene. We see all three of those things I just talked about, like in the first three chapters of Genesis. Physical bodies, physical world, social relationships and structures, and then spiritual forces. And then after the fall, what you're going to see is every one of those aspects are going to get cursed or corrupted or radically changed. So that by the time you get to chapter 4, you're going to get your first murder. First person born under the curse, first generation born, first set of brothers, one's going to kill the other. And all these influences we'll talk about were all factors. Starting with our physical body, you've probably realized by now, and the longer you live, you'll realize your body's not just along for the ride. Anybody realize that yet? It's not a silent partner in life. It affects you. It influences you. We are physically embodied creatures. And so this influences how we experience the world. How come many of us got up this morning walked outside and went, you know what, life's good. What was it? One simple thing probably. 55 degrees and sunshine. And so again, we would hope we go, okay, that's not the cause of our joy. Hopefully not the cause of gladness. Part of maturing in Christ is that we, that is less and less cause. But that does influence you. If you were to walk out and it was 89 degrees and balmy, you would go, Maranatha, Lord, come quickly, right? It would influence you, but in a different kind of way. 
It affects how we experience the world, how, how we express ourselves into the world. I mean, just think about it. We can't be here right now and even having this conversation without biochemistry happening, without physiology, without things happening in your nervous system to actually help you both experience and express this moment. And so it doesn't control the content or moral nature of our conversation, but it does mediate our ability to hear and process words. It does mediate our ability to speak words and read verbal or nonverbal cues. And so those things matter. And so you especially know it if you have a hearing deficit or deaf. That affects how you experience and express yourself into the world. Or if there's blindness, that affects how you experience and express yourself into the world. Well, those are physiological realities that, that affect you. They influence you. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, turn there, 2 Corinthians 5, <clears throat> for we know that if the tent, this is verse 1, that is our earthly home is destroyed, this body, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens, for in this tent we groan longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may be found naked, not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, meaning the Christian hope is not that we would be bodiless. It's not that we would just be spirits floating around in space. It's not that there would be no new heavens and a new earth that's physical and concrete. No, it's rather that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. And just what Paul's saying there, that God created us as embodied creatures, and now under the fall, under the curse, we groan. Both in the physical body, but also the earthly creation. There's a physical pressure that you feel. And some days that's a sharper pain or pressure than other days. Yeah, even back in Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve eat the fruit, eyes are open, they feel ashamed, they realize they're naked, they sow fig leaves, they go hide, God approaches them, draws them out, they have that interaction, and then God's going to curse the serpent, then Eve, and then Adam. And it's the first time you're going to see in the Bible the word pain. And so he's going to say to Eve, there's going to be now pain in childbearing for you. Okay, Adam, there's going to be pain in your work. And so three times in Genesis 3, 14 to 24, that word pain, toil, anguish is going to be used. Genesis 3, 18, there will be thorns and thistles. Genesis 3, 19, sweat of your face. And then what's the final act of that curse that God's going to speak to Adam? After all that toil, pain, labor, thorns, thistles, sweat of your face, then what's going to happen? You're going to die. You're going to go back to the ground. The ultimate influence of the body where it will die. That once born, our bodies are one day closer. To death. Genesis 5, you read Genesis 5, and it's the evidence of that. 
so-and-so begot so-and-so, and then they lived this many years, and then what? And they died. Every time. Now, there's going to be one, Enoch, who the Lord just takes. He was walking on the earth and then was no more. But that's meant to stand out as a remarkable, strange exception. Everyone else, and they died. 2 Corinthians 5, 2, in this tent we groan. So from allergies all the way to cancer, from hangnails to compound fractures, from just the daily fatigue that you feel to actually collapsing or passing out in exhaustion, from twisted ankles to amputations, from influenza to pneumonia to COVID, you could throw your back out or you could become paralyzed. From mouth sores you get right to scarlet fever, brain injuries to coma, dementia, thyroid problems, endocrine problems, your liver can fail, dehydration. I mean, we go on all day, right? Just opening a textbook of all the ways that your body can go wrong and all the ways that your body can be a source of pain. And I remember watching an interaction between a young man and an older man in a Q&A one time, and the older gentleman shifted, and as he shifted in his chair on the stage, he went, oh. And this younger man goes, man, you old guys, you're always grunting and moaning, and, and the older man looked at me and goes, just keep living, brother. <laughs> just keep living. Like, yours is coming. We're just a shift in your seat. You've got to think it through. You've got to make sure your angles are right because you could pull something. You know, it's, I, I've, one way I felt aging is the amount of time I spend planning picking something up. <laughs> you notice that. You start really having to plan that out. You're staring at it. You're looking at leverage, at angles. You start looking around for younger people, <laughs> you know. And then when you finally realize, no, I actually have to do this, then you have the amount of thought that goes, well, that's because in this tent we groan. It's also why the, the idea that one person's body would tempt them in different ways than another person's body is very biblical. The idea that we all suffer physically very diversely. We all have similar realities, but also distinctive ones. The idea that one person will be more disposed to alcohol abuse than another because what, how alcohol interacts with their body is slightly different than others. The idea that one person is more susceptible in disposition to drug abuse than another. That one person's body is more prone to anxiety, agitation, impulsiveness, extreme energy, where another person's body is more prone to despondency, to lethargy, to exhaustion. And that that would tempt to more discouragement to more possible despair. Again, we're not talking about cause, we're talking about disposition, influence, leaning. Again, you just think about back to weather, like how many people experience the same weather very differently? Like there's, like I, I have a brother-in-law who lives in Dallas-Fort Worth area, and he said this is as far north in the world as he ever wants to live because he loves it really, really hot. And I've talked to people here, they go, this is as far south in the world as they ever want to live, is right here. 
and some of that is just climate, where you, you just the way temperature feels, the way the light shines, the way you fill in the body, you just you experience it differently. Some of it's training, some of it's disposition. Or taste for food, some of it's training, some of it's disposition. Some of it's what can your body handle. That's the other thing you start, the older you get, you think about what you pick up, you also think about what you eat more carefully. Because you're looking at this thing going, okay, am I willing to pay the price for eating this? Because you don't actually digest it as it's moving down your esophagus anymore. When you're 20, literally it's burning up on entry. But yeah, you get to a certain age, it goes in there and your body's like, what'd you do? What do you want me to do with this? And it affects you differently. So again, just the body influences. We also experience the created world in diverse ways. Romans 8. Turn to Romans 8, if you would. Romans 8, verse 19. The creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption of sons, notice what he calls it, the redemption of our bodies. That part of the promise of salvation, part of our adoption as God's children is redemption of our bodies. That someday after our bodies go into the grave, and the, the Lord will raise them and glorify them and reunite us to them with redeemed bodies. But you notice there, it's not just us, it's the whole creation groans. That when the Lord put that curse on Adam, Eve, serpent, there was also a curse on the whole creation. But he did it in hope. Because who wants to live in this forever? And so even that curse was, okay, in the hope of a new heavens and a new earth, in the hope of a redeemed body, in the hope, in this person that God would send Jesus Christ to actually write what they had wronged, what Adam had wronged. And so hurricanes, tornadoes, earthquakes, those are all part of a creation subjected to futility. Those are birth pangs. Bear attacks and shark attacks. Just the idea that pre-fall, they could have gone swimming out in the ocean without any concern. Hiking up in Alaska without worry about bears. Spider bites, ant bites, sunburns, frostbite. That all of those testify to us that something is wrong. That the sun that was meant to be a source of light and warmth can now actually burn you. That the number of things, again, allergies, as I shared earlier, that what a great illustration of our bodies being at war with the creation. That at a very molecular level, particles can actually get into your nasal passage and your body go to war against it. And go, okay, this stuff, and so everything starts to water and sneeze and hack because your body's like, we got to get that out of here, whatever that is. And so even at a molecular level, we experience 
that conflict and friction. COVID is our bodies being at odds with the rest of creation. And this influences us. This affects how we think and feel and relate. And so we're not meant to ignore or deny the influence of those factors on our bodies, nor the influence of our bodies on our experience of the world, nor the influence of our bodies on how we express ourselves into the world. They play a significant mediating role. But secondly, our social world, we're not just physically embodied, we're socially embedded creatures. We're born into families and into communities under specific people, specific leaders, specific human beings that are depraved and fallen and sinners. Sometimes we experience the effects very, very directly, the actual parents that we were given the actual relationship with siblings that we had. Other times it's very indirect. We all experience every day the indirect effects of decisions that are made a long way from here because of the society we live in. You know, Cain in Genesis 4 murdered Abel, like we see it that fast in the storyline of Scripture. That influence, not just upon Abel, but now here's Adam and Eve, who not only do they have the guilt, the shame, the weight, of their own decision that brought about corruption and fall, but that they're burying their second child not much later. And then they're watching their oldest son get driven east to be a wanderer across the planet. I mean, think of that experience for Adam and Eve in that moment, that they're, okay, that, they weren't supposed to be immune to that. They weren't supposed to look at Abel's grave as Cain's walking east going, you know, no big deal. And be impassive. Now that affects you. It affected them. So if your father abandons your home when you're three years old, that's going to affect you. It's meant to affect you. You may be tempted to blame yourself, to wonder what you could have done differently, even though you were three. And how in the years after, you have to wrestle through that rejection, that choice of a father to not love spouse or kids or whatever those reasons might be. You might be tempted to relate to other people with suspicion, to not get too close, to not get too attached because you're always waiting for that other shoe to drop, prone to keep others at a safe distance. Again, not causal, but influence because those are things that you experience growing up in life and make decisions on how to relate to and think about that affects you. Your mother was verbally abusive and cruel. That's going to leave a mark. You might pour yourself more into school, into athletics, something to achieve, something to perfect, something whether to avoid being at your home or to somehow keep her happy. And you may spend decades trying to keep your mom happy and make decisions and choices and relate in certain ways that you don't even realize how much of it is about just keeping peace in certain relationships. It's an influence. If you grow up being bullied at school, that's going to influence you. Temptations to insecurity, to anger and rage, to self-pity, 
the temptation to avoid other relationships, or maybe even, you know what, to respond in kind. I'll just be a bigger bully than they were. That that temptation, sexual abuse experience, is, affects us. How it would assault our sense of dignity, sense of self, sense of being valued even in the eyes of God. The shame of it, the guilt of it. Perhaps hatred for the body that comes of it. Perhaps desire to not have a body. Or responding by going the other way and being promiscuous and giving your body to all kinds of things. Living under an oppressive government inside a community that rejects you or scorns you or mistreats you. That presses upon the human heart in very unique ways. Because we're not living, we feel realize, in a utopia. And there's some approach to the Christian life that is trying to create a utopia through government, a utopia through community, a utopia through fill in the blank. You know, it's just not something the Lord's ever promised. Not this side of the new heavens and the new earth. And so there's no escaping this physical body, and there's no escaping the effects of the curse on the body. There's no escaping our social embeddedness and all the effects of corruption and curse upon that social embeddedness. <clears throat> and praise God, we're not even meant to. And so sometimes we'll endure great suffering at the hands of parents, siblings, neighborhoods, tribes, governments. Marriage can be a source of pain. That's unavoidable. You're a sinner married to a sinner. Parenting can be a source of pain. You're a sinner parenting sinners. In the same way that as a kid growing up, your parents can be a source of pain. Friendship's a source of pain. And so there's all kinds of unique challenges and burdens just from being embedded in a society of people. Thirdly, our spiritual war, because we're physically embodied, socially embedded, but we're also spiritually embattled creatures. Ephesians 6.12, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Just that Paul would say in the midst of this physical body, in the midst of this social world, the, the, the real root even of our struggle isn't with flesh and blood. It's with a demonic realm. It's with these forces of darkness that you can't see, but that are there. Their effects are real because they are real. And we can't always see the direct line to them because it's an invisible battle. But yet, Scripture is trying to give us eyes to see it. Just know that behind all this, there's a war going that you can't see. And of course, what's Paul's counsel to us then? If that's the case, if our struggle, if this is our main struggle, then what? That's why he says, put on the full armor of God. You don't have to get fancy or mystic or crazy about it. Just look at the list. And he goes, because our this struggle is not with flesh and blood, you better put on prayer. You better put on the gospel. You better put on the word of God. You better walk in the spirit. And so he doesn't tell us to get fixated and fascinated with seeing the invisible. So much as living with what is true about that invisible. He had Job 2 7, Luke 9, 37 to 40, Luke 22, 31 to 32, even in those places where Jesus is trying to help us see that that's part of the battle. 
Yeah, just the story of Job is such a clear example, right? That here's Job who's going to lose his 10 children in a day, all his property, so much of it plundered, destroyed, then his own body struck. So physical embodiedness, the social embeddedness brought all this loss, grief, pain, all these raiding bands, but also natural disasters being used. And yet behind all of it was who was the instrument doing that evil? It was Satan, right? And we, we get nothing from the story of Job that tells us he ever knew until that story is written. But then behind Satan, we'll talk about this in a little bit, there's who? There's God. And so there was this whole discourse in the heavenly council between God and, and Satan that Job doesn't even know about. And he doesn't even know that God's the one who picked the fight. Who said, hey, have you noticed my servant Job over here? How he walks with me? And, and Job just knew the physical pain. He knew the social disaster and suffering. But behind it, there was a spiritual war that he was being called upon to, to trust God in and to cling to him in. And so the overall storyline of Scripture proves that point that we're not struggling against mere flesh and blood. From the Garden of Eden, Genesis 3.1, all the way to Revelation 20, the human struggle has always been with these malicious spiritual forces in heavenly places. Our hearts are tested and exposed by this struggle. Remember how Jesus is about, it's the eve of the crucifixion, in the upper room, and he's talking about how he's about to be handed over to evil men to die, and everybody's going to run. There's one guy that stands up and says, not me. Who is it? Peter. Peter goes, you know what, Lord? All may fall away, but not me. And just that statement, he looks around the room, the other disciples goes, yeah, I've seen these guys in action, Jesus. Goodness, yeah, they'll probably run. I get it. But hey, I'm, I'm here. I've got you. And remember, Jesus says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked for you. And the you is plural, not just you. Because once Simon's, Peter says that, the other disciples are chiming in that they won't fall away either. But he's like, Satan has asked for you, all of you. And what you hope Jesus says next is, but I won't let him have you. Instead, he says, but I'll pray for you. That your faith won't fail. And he says, and after you've come back, well, from what? Sifting. He says, strengthen your brothers. And in a sense, Jesus is saying, you know, Peter, you're, you're not real useful to me like this. With this arrogant, proud, you got it covered attitude. And so Satan's asked for you and these others, and, and he's going to get a few rounds with you. And then after you come back from that whooping, you're going to be more humble. I'm going to pray that your faith doesn't fail. And then you'll be in a place to strengthen your brothers. And so even, you know, Martin Luther was known for saying, he's the devil, but he's God's devil. In the sense of instrument. Where God isn't the author of evil, the doer of evil, but he knows how to use evil beings to accomplish his purposes. 
And so even in that case where he's going to use Satan to sift Peter, through that denial, right, three times he's going to deny that he even knows Jesus. Here's the guy who just that night says, I'll go with you to the grave. Well, by the end of the night, he's denying he even knows Jesus to a slave girl, which is the Bible's way of saying the most powerless person in the world. A child, a girl, a slave. He won't even acknowledge that he knows Jesus to her. And so, let any of you thinks he stand, take heed, lest he fall. Because all God has to do is give us a round with him. And we will come back bloodied and humbled. Which is sometimes exactly what we need. But again, we see so many places where the scripture kind of pulls back the veil and helps us see that war that's going on behind. After being led by the Spirit into the wilderness in Matthew 4, Jesus is going to enter into a period of temptation at the hands of the devil. And praise God, his faith doesn't fail. His resolve doesn't fail. He holds fast to the word of his Father. He holds fast to righteousness. And praise God, because he overcame the devil, both in temptation and in his life, death, and resurrection, we actually, in Christ, can overcome the devil, and someday will. And part of it is we can't always control all those influences. We can't always control what our body's going to do as time goes on, the sickness that comes, the pains that come. We can't always control the relationships that we're in, the world around us. But we do have someone we're supposed to relate to in the midst of it. Which brings us to this next section of the sovereignty of God. That though a great portion of all these influences we've talked about are outside of our control, they're not outside of the control of God. Lamentations 3.37, Who is there who speaks and it comes to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? What a great statement that nothing comes to you, nothing you'll ever face, nothing you'll ever experience that God didn't permit. How does it come to pass unless the Lord commands it? Back to Job, right, where for Job to go take Job's property, or for Satan to go take Job's property and to kill his children, who did he have to get permission from? From the Lord. And even then the Lord said, okay, you can take all that stuff and his kids, but you can't touch him. Well, then Satan's going to go back another time and get permission to touch his body. To that, the Lord says, well, you can touch his body, but you can't take his life. In all those cases, what does Satan do? He goes no further than what the Lord permitted him. No further. And just even what a comfort that's supposed to be. That even the demonic hosts, like, they fear God. (laughs) They don't lie in his presence. They'll lie and deceive us, but never him. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and ill go forth? Lamentations 3. And that's not an easy truth to absorb. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and ill go forth? Not that he authors evil, but rather he is sovereignly governing even how evil is used and what touches you and what doesn't touch you. And the idea that everything that would have happened to you across your life 
God would have permitted and as author of your life authored. Not done it, not all of it, but allowed and ordained. But as we'll see in a little bit, the good news is that's not the end of the story. Because Romans 8, 28, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. That everything that suffers and hurts in your body over your lifetime, everything that suffers and hurts in your social embeddedness, everything that you endure at, at the hands of demons or governments or world powers, that God is the infinite genius who can use every single little detail for your good. And that doesn't always make sense underneath it. It may not make sense in some things to you're at home with him. And yet, Scripture gives us those kinds of statements to say it's not out of control. And the Lord is so mighty, so powerful, so wise, so good, so steadfast in his love for you that he will use every single one of those details like brush strokes on a canvas that he's painting that is part of how he's conforming you to the image of Christ. And part of the circumstances he used to even bring you to Christ to humble you to see your need for Christ. Because we might think all day long, yeah, if all that hadn't happened to me, then it would be better. Well, it depends on what you mean by better. Because if all that hadn't happened to you, you, you may have never come to Christ. Or you might not be conformed to the image of Christ. Just as if Peter hadn't been sifted, he would have come back proud, arrogant, and made a mess of those early days of the church. <laughs> That's for sure. And so we never know how it's going to be used. We just know who's going to use it. And that's where the comfort is. And so you'll see that sort of diagram there in your notes of those concentric circles out with the heart in the middle, physical embodied, socially embedded, spiritually embattled, but there's a sovereign God who's enthroned. Which then brings us to the gospel. And so back in Romans 8, where we just were, where Paul's going to say in verse 18, for I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. So even the creation is waiting for that day when Jesus comes back and the sons of God, the bodies are raised from the ground where God's people are glorified, new heavens and new earth, like even the creation is longing for that day. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. He who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, 
For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn of many brothers. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. And that's the context for God using all things for your good. Well, what good? Justification, sanctification, glorification. That good. Conforming us to the image of his Son. That's using all things for good that he's doing. Which means today, as you go out and suffer in your body, or suffer in your relationships, or suffer at the hands of this spiritual war, you're able to look to the Lord and go, Lord, thank you. I know you're using this for my good. I know behind this is your hand of providence conforming me to the image of your son. Providing me with things I didn't even know I needed. Taking away from me things I didn't know were going to destroy me. Because we're not wise. He is. We're not all-knowing. He is. And so just the comfort of the gospel that because God sent his son into the world, Jesus, who lived, died, was raised, ascended, gave the gift of his spirit, new hearts, united to Jesus, that we actually live now with the hope by turning from sin, trusting in Christ, that we will inherit a new body. Amen? I mean, we'll inherit a new physical environment. We will inherit a new social environment. We will inherit the kingdom of the Son where Satan and his hosts aren't even permitted. They're going to be cast into the lake of fire. In other words, the gospel promises new body, new society, new kingdom, free of demonic influence. It's just not yet. What he promises now is a new heart. You get to be united to Christ and be a new creation. The gift of faith, the gift of union with Jesus, the gift of being joined to the body of Christ to follow Christ together, awaiting that glorious day when there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. Colossians 2, 13 through 15, where it talks about how Jesus in his death on the cross disarmed Satan and the demonic host and put them all to open shame. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15, where it talks about how Jesus partook of flesh and blood, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those through fear of death who are subject to lifelong slavery. Just the idea that that God can use and permit Satan to cause pain in our lives, but he never gets us. Not ever. There's a line he can never cross because Jesus has disarmed him. Jesus has destroyed the power of death in our lives, which was the main weapon he would wield. So even that we don't have to fear. Implications, just three. There's so, we could probably come up with 20, but here's three. One is just awareness. Take your body, take your social world, take the spiritual battles seriously. They're real. And so how you relate to your body matters. How you relate to it as the temple of the Holy Spirit matters. And so there should be a desire for good nutrition, good exercise, wise treatment of the body because that does influence us. It does affect us. And so we want to pray to be aware of just the body that the Lord has given us. How do you 
take care of the body in such a way that helps you follow Christ. And it won't be the same for everybody else. There's just things that other people get to eat and you don't. Things they can drink, you can't. And there's things that you might be able to eat and drink that they can't or shouldn't. But just awareness, just body awareness, relationship awareness, spiritual battle awareness. Secondly, though, alertness. Don't just be aware of it. Be alert to it. Pray that the Lord would help you guard your heart and keep it with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Guard yourself as much as you're able from undue, unhelpful influences on your body, relationships, from the spiritual enemy. Yet Job said he, he made a covenant with his eyes to not look lustfully upon women because that affected his soul and relationships. That's an example. Paul's going to say, I buffet my body and make it my slave, lest I preach the gospel, then go on to be disqualified. Paul realized if I just say yes to my body all the time, someday that's going to disqualify me from gospel ministry. And so he had to learn to tell his body no when his body wanted things that weren't good. Psalm 1, 1, where David, right out of the gate in Psalm 1, is going to say, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. That's an example of it. There's some social influence relationships that we can't avoid, and we're actually meant to go out into the world and minister Christ to people. But it's very different from running with a group of people who are scoffers, who hate God, who scorn his word. And so it's realizing, yeah, none of us are strong enough to endure that. And that's part of the gift of the church. Okay, I want to be surrounded where my main friendships, those I go to for counsel, those who have the primary influence on my soul, love the Lord. So that I can even be strengthened to go out and be around other relationships that aren't so edifying, but for the purpose of missions and evangelism and proclamation of Christ. But it can't be the other way around. It can't be those are my main relationships. That is where I seek counsel. No, that's where you go to war spiritually. <laughs> but the church is the place where you mutually disciple one another and grow up together and influence one another in that way. Thirdly, hope. Hopefully we take from this just the great hope that the gospel gives us that someday we will be free from the pain and the toil of the curse. And that Romans 8.18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Which means the, the greater the pain you have endured or will endure in this life, let that help you see the proportion of the glory that is to be revealed. Because Paul says, whatever that pain and suffering we endure here, it's not even worth comparing to the glory that's going to be revealed. And that's a message that's full of hope that we're meant to feed on. I wanted to leave us time for some discussion. And so as we have the last few weeks, just I'm going to have you break up into groups again of five, six, seven, and there'll be some discussion questions there in your notes that just to take time as a group and just take one or two of those, or if you're able to get through all of them, great, and just discuss together just how you personally tend to emphasize or underemphasize or overemphasize the influence of some of these areas. And, and then to talk about kind of what feeds your hope in, yeah, in those influences that you're under. Yeah. Good question. Just like before we pass the platform, 
Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's a great question. So the question is like, how do you discern the moments where, okay, the suffering you're under or in, God is using for your good and stay there, hold still under the knife, versus what are those times where actually these are influences, undue influences and shaping factors that I should get out of? And that's, I think, one reason why even James is going to say, if any of you are suffering, what? Let him pray. Um, James 1, if any of you lacks wisdom, ask God. And that's even in the context of suffering. You know, count it all joy when you face trials of any kind, knowing that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. There's the good side. But then also, if you, don't, if you lack wisdom, ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault. Because there is that, yeah, that discernment that's needed that I think is a supernatural kind of discernment too. This is a moment where I need to hold still under what God is doing and exposing in my heart in areas where I need him and need the help of others. Versus actually, this is something that I'm drowning under. And I need to ask God to actually rescue and deliver me and other people to draw me out. Versus even thirdly, oh, this is actually something that is reshaping my very like affections in a different direction. Like this is something that is, you know, leading me away from the body of Christ, this set of friends that is causing me even to, to be bitter and scorn God. And that doesn't, again, mean get out. It just means I need a different kind of help um, to, to actually navigate it. But I think that, I mean, if you figure that out this week, um, you know, let me know. We can write something on that. Um, because I think, it, but I think another thing I'd say, and that's why we need the church. That's why we need the body of Christ. I think that's why we need other people around us who are also praying and looking and going, okay, this is something I think you can escape, like, and should not be actually volunteering for or moving toward in that way versus other things where we say, you know, it looks like the Lord's just exposing and drawing things out, like in this workplace environment you're in, and you may not want to just quit and go get a different job too quickly here. Um, it may get to a point where like, actually know the influence, the effect it's having, the kind of work hours that are required, the kind of worldliness that it's, okay, you really need to look for another employment. But other times it's like, no, there's just a few people on your team that bring out the worst in you. There's a few people on your team that the Lord seems to be using especially to learn how to love and to serve and to be humble. And so that's where I think the conversation helps in the church with, with godly friends who can help you navigate it. That's good. All right, well, let's take 10 minutes here um, and then break up into those groups. And after that 10 minutes, I'll come back up and pray for us and we'll break at that point.